No, Binky. Off of there. Uh, is that even comfortable? Oh, whoops. <clears throat> Welcome to the season premiere of Six Degrees of Cats. Paka. Kusa. Koyangi. Gorbe. Nickel. This podcast, in which I, Captain Kitty, or Amanda, if we're technical about it, investigate a question about cats that explores each degree of separation between human and feline kind with the help of a diversity of experts. We'll touch on genetics, history, cognition, a bunch of philosophy, psychology, and marketing. Basically the same thing, if you ask me. On top of the stuff we already know, discuss, and probably love about cats. Okay, so now that we got those self-introductions out of the way, I should probably clarify that no, in real life I don't refer to myself in the third person. Even though I actually just read some article that says it can help to do that. Per the reaction I got on the train, we don't do that. Obviously, I love cats. Maybe you do too. Or maybe not. What is wrong with you? They're so cute! Whew, just need a moment there. Okay, we can roll. And how cool is it that they have nine lives? I wonder where that even came from. What is it about cats and resiliency that seems to be such a recurring theme in how we understand them? You know, the whole cats landing on their feet and all. Isn't that kind of related to that physics problem where buttered toast always falls on the floor buttered side down? Speaking of physics, I studied astrophysics a bit in college. I wonder why the ancients saw a dog, an archer, and a bunch of bears, but no cat. Cats are totally stars. They're absolutely the rock stars of the I think I've seen cat. a lot of pictures of folks like David Bowie holding a cat. Freddie Mercury of Queen, a big time cat. Yes, queens. Why do we call mama female cats kitties queen? sure are more reticent than their male counterparts. What is it they hmm. say about a fierce mama bear and her young? Whoa, I'm sorry, I'm on a roll. You are totally caught up in my brain, which is exactly the point of this podcast. Maybe you've heard the saying, six degrees of separation. It's that concept that we humans are all connected to each other individually through six or less people. I got kitties on my mind all the time. I have really, really thought a lot about them, probably more than the average person. Definitely more than the average person. To the point where it's, uh, it's kind of shaped how I see the world. Humans are connected to cats in so many more ways than you may realize. The way we've come to depict cats, coexist with cats, and conceptualize cats says so much about us in addition to cats, of course. So you can think of this podcast as a way for me to connect the dots between humans and our cuddly cousins, cats. Are you intrigued? I hope so. Alrighty, let's start from the beginning. The very beginning of cats and humans. In this episode, we'll answer the burning question that has haunted our hearts since the beginning of this beautiful friendship between cats and humans. Where did they come from, these kitties? And how did they get to share our home, our beds, our food, and our culture? According to one origin story... In the beginning... 
God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then water, earth, whales, yada yada. Then at some point, the divine Felis Catus, the domesticated house cat. Most ancient texts, like the one I just, oops, I mean, my British colleague just read from, don't really show people um, scooping litter from, like, ancient mud baskets or praying to the gods to cure their cat of the demon that possesses them at 2 a.m. to run the heck through the house, waking up all 15 generations of the family cohabitating in there. I mean, I'd love to see that hieroglyphic. I'm choosing not to take it personally that cats, unlike dogs and cows and whatnot, don't actually Binky, can you cut it out? Actually appear in some of the most influential written documents in what we refer to as the Western canon, such as the Bible. It turns out the regions depicted in those ancient texts, such as Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and Persia, which is modern-day Iran, have a lot of relevance in the beginning of the cat-human connection. A relatively small amount of research has been dedicated to the domestication of cats, probably because it's quite hard to get funding for research on, say, women's health, let alone more fun questions like this one. But there are folks whose work has cat prints all over it, such as our first expert. My name is Melinda Zeter. I am what's considered an anthropological archaeologist. I was a senior scientist and a curator of old world archaeology at the Smithsonian Institution in their Department of Anthropology, uh, which is part of the National Museum of Natural History. I'm now emeritus in that position, uh, retired in 2018 after almost 30 years at the Smithsonian. But I'm still engaged in uh, active research, uh, primarily focused on domestication, uh, both plants and animals, which is a real passion of mine. That's been the primary focus of my work, looking at human interaction with animals and increasingly with plants through the lens of domestication. In this incredible discussion I had with Dr. Zeter, I realized the word domestic has a different, specific definition to what I use in my everyday North American conversational English. What do we mean when we talk about domestication? Definitions of domestication, there have been many, uh, and they've tended to either go in two poles, either human oriented, uh, where it views humans as assuming this mastery, almost like a technological breakthrough for humans of figuring out how to bring plants and animals under their control for their own benefit. More recently, people have begun to look at it purely through a biological lens of what's in it for the plant and animal, portraying humans as unwitting dupes in the process. The way I view that is a mutualism, meaning that both partners come together, they interact in a way that is to their mutual benefit and is something that affects their overall evolution. So I see domestication as this ongoing relationship. 
by collaborating with humans, domestication has really paid off for these plant and animal species that have engaged in this relationship to the point that it has become usually genetically modified in a way that it has become increasingly dependent on maintaining that relationship and less and less able to survive outside of it. That totally helped clarify domestication. Let's talk about it in terms of cats. For this question, I was also fortunate to speak with researcher Dr. Kristen Vitali, whose work has challenged the notion that cats are dumb, untrainable, or other things that turn out to be pretty darn incorrect, as any true cat lover has known. Take it away, Dr. Vitali. My main research deals with cat behavior and social cognition. How do cats behave when they're around people and when they receive different types of socialization interventions or different training? How do these things impact their behavior, but also their welfare in the home? That's one of my goals uh, through my research is to find ways that we can increase cat welfare through this knowledge. We have millions of cats living in homes here in the U.S. alone, but we don't really know the kind of things that are most beneficial to increasing their welfare, or um, when I say welfare, I mean allowing them to engage in behaviors that are most biologically relevant to their species. So we know things like scratching. That's a really biologically relevant behavior, but it's also a behavior that causes a lot of conflict with their owners. To Dr. Zeter's earlier point on domestication and the common misunderstandings of the process and the use of that term. I think that domestication gets used in a lot of ways that it's scientifically not meant to be. When we talk about domestication of a species, we're really looking at significant evolutionary change over time. Is that animal significantly different from their wild ancestor? Did they undergo significant changes in their body structure, in their behavior, and in their genetics? So it's really kind of a genetic state. When we look at a domestic cat, their body is very different than a wild cat. And same for dogs. What we often see in domesticated animals is that there's a shortening of limbs. Tails are also shortened or curled up. There's more juvenile features. Things like floppy ears are seen both in dogs and cats. We have Scottish fold cats, which have floppy ears. You also see a retention of juvenile traits. So these behaviors that typically cease in adulthood continue on. And so in cats, we see things like purring or a kneading on a person or drooling, which are almost all related to nursing behavior. And so domesticated species kind of have a lot of these characteristic body and behavioral differences. Aw, so kitties kneading is like sucking their thumbs. That's adorable. When we return from the break, we'll continue our discussion of domestication. Another thing we often see is that piebald coloration that uh, black and white, basically pigmented and unpigmented fur. And a lot of these are just trademarks of domestication. It's not that you don't see those in wild animals. It's that domesticated animals have a much higher proportion 
because they've been selectively bred or um, the tame individuals have been bred over time. Huh, tame individuals. When we talk about domestication, we're talking about this evolutionary process. But if we're talking about tameness or being socialized, that's more of a proximate mechanism. So something that's going on in that individual's life. We might have a domesticated cat. Genetically, they're domesticated, but they receive no socialization from humans. So they're a feral individual. They're not socialized, but they're still domesticated. You can have a domesticated individual who is feral. I had no idea tame and domesticated were distinct. How did we get tame behaviors out of these animals? Or rather, how did the tamest of the tame kitty cats come to be domesticated by us? That's actually something that we don't really know for both dogs and cats. We have, you know, these predominant ideas that we went out and selected for specific wolves that were social to people and bred them and selectively did that. And that cats kind of just showed up around our settlements and kind of domesticated themselves. While that's probably, you know, very close to the case, it's not actually something that we know for sure. It could be just as likely that people went out and selected African wildcats that were tame to people and selectively bred them the same way. And it could be that with free roaming wolves that were more tame showed up around human settlements, stayed and continued to breed, just like the way we think of it as happening with cats. Although these are kind of the major things that are pushed, we don't really know what happened. It's not documented historically. No one wrote down the process there is that idea that there's this big difference between the evolutionary history of the two species, but we just don't know. For sure, dogs have been domesticated longer, and through that, people have selected for specific things that they want the dogs to do. But we really haven't kind of intensively selected for that in cats, and I think that's one of the big differences not just what that starting point of domestication was, but how we've treated them as the process has gone. They filled very different roles for us as humans. Dr. Zeter concurs. You know, cats are hard to document in their domestication in the archaeological record because they're not a major food item. Their remains don't show up in archaeological sites as much, and maybe in part because of the unique path that cats take into domestication. So while there are some physical changes that Dr. Vitali talked about. They don't show the kind of changes in the skeleton that would allow you to distinguish domestic cats from wild cats. Cats seem to hold on to that wild cat form for quite a while. Let's go back to evolutionary history with Dr. Zeter, how humans and animals originally interacted. There were, you know, multiple sort of pathways into domestication, either with humans initiating the relationship by manipulating conditions of growth or the actual life cycle of these animals themselves to their advantage, or what I call a commensal pathway. Commensal pathway? The domesticate that initiates the relationship by moving into an anthropogenic or a human-created environment to take advantage of new opportunities there. And that at some point, humans see the advantage of having that species around and begin to engage in reciprocal interactions that lead to domestication. So when it comes to Felis catus, 
it's thought that cats are one of those commensal uh, domesticates like dogs. Cats do seem to be camp followers of grain, and the association between cats' mousing ability and humans' interest in grain is probably a, a factor in their ultimate crossing over from commensal to fully domesticated animal. So where did this all happen? Let me just refer to the Near East, which is where I primarily worked, and it's which is known as the uh, heartland of domestication of things like wheat and barley, other really common crops, as well as the major livestock species of cattle and sheep and goat and pigs. A lot of archaeological work has been conducted across this whole region that's often referred to as the Fertile Crescent. Those biblical sites I referenced earlier. That stretches from uh, Israel all the way up through Lebanon and around into northern Syria, across southeastern Anatolia or Turkey, into northeastern Iraq and down into the Zagros Mountains of Iran. So is that where domesticated kitties first came from? It's not clear to me that that Turkey in particular was the context for initial domestication, but that the region was probably. The idea now is, is that as people began to live in one place for longer periods of time, that also attracted um, other species like mice. The attraction of that long-term human occupation with people being kind of trashy and leaving things around attract these other animals in there, as well as animals that prey on the animals that are attracted to feeding off the refuse or garbage or stored grain. The first sedentary communities we see in uh, Israel are 14,000 years ago, and it's possible that the relationship may have started that far back. They are providing a real service of keeping pests down and very important uh, stocks of these stored plant resources. So it sounds like we really can say we've been friends with cats for a lot longer than assumed. Or at least there's evidence to show that might be the case. We see some evidence in actually Cyprus of all places. I think it's about 10,000 years ago, 10,500 years ago, with a cat burial associated with humans. And even though that, that skeleton of that cat looks to be like a wild cat, cats aren't native to Cyprus. So it's thought that they were actually brought there by humans. And the association with humans indicates to the people that excavated it that it's developed some sort of a social bond with humans because it was intentionally buried. We see cats with a Near Eastern heritage showing up in sites as far removed as in Poland. Fascinating. Cats were loved all across the world. I definitely hope I can go on a world tour of these places someday. There's just one remaining question I have. Can an animal be partly domesticated? I've heard that about cats. There's sort of a trope out there that cats are only partially domesticated. They've retained more of these wild behaviors, and I I really don't think that's quite true. They do come from a very different type of animal than the dog with the wolf. You know, the wolves are very social animals, and I think the dogs have really played on that socialization and their 
unique ability to develop social bonds with their humans. And cats come out of animals that are much more solitary. And so in many ways, you know, their behavior harkens back to that initial behavior. This brings us back to Dr. Vitali's earlier points about tame behaviors in domesticated animal populations. You still have tame individuals that are cats, but you also have non-tame individuals. But you have that in any population. It's the same with wolves, that certain individuals are less tame than others. And the more tame individuals will do more well around human settlements, whether that's because humans tolerate them more because, hey, that wolf's not biting me. I'm going to let them eat the scraps or because humans went out and got those wolves because they had a reduced flight distance from the person. They were more willing to interact or to stay around. Even within the scientific community, there is argument whether cats are fully domesticated or not. But again, I think when you're talking about a species versus an individual, how can you have a a half domesticated individual? Um, Maybe you can, but that's something that's not really clearly laid out. What is a domesticated animal? And if we're talking about an evolutionary change over time from an ancestor, and that's our definition, then I'm not sure how you can have, you know, a semi-domesticated individual cat. So when your kitty has the zoomies or it's not responding quite the way you would expect it to based on dog behaviors or other domesticated animals you can train to do human-like things, that really doesn't mean they're not fully domesticated. Dr. Zeter has a really interesting point. They are the consummate domesticate because what they've managed to do is totally domesticate their owners who do all these things for them and then get bitten (laughs) in return and don't get undying, unquestionable love. Okay, whoa. Newsflash. We were domesticated by cats. Ain't that the truth? I know we all joke about how our cats have trained us to do certain things. I mean, looks like that's kind of how it all started. I have a feeling that the first people were just as charmed by the cuteness of kitty cats as we are now. You know what? Let me change my earlier statement. I am taking it personally that cats were excluded from ancient texts. Sounds like they've been around for a long time. That said, Not all ancient texts excluded kitties. We're going to go there. Everything is within six degrees of cats. Please check out the show notes where a few greater deep dives into this relatively simplified discussion are available. Big thanks to the amazing Dr. Kristen Vitale and Melinda Zeter. And thanks to my team, which is me, Captain Kitty. Yes, fine. You are the executive producers, Binky and Snuggle. Six Degrees of Cats is produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Captain Kitty, a.k.a. Amanda B. Please subscribe to our mailing list by visiting tinyurl.com slash sixdegreesofcats or find us on all those social media platforms. And for my paid subscribers you'll have access to the extra audio with more deep dives by our experts. This and all episodes are dedicated to the misunderstood, the marginalized, the resilient, and the weird. 
and of course, all the cats we've loved and lost. always had cats um, ever since I was a little girl. My family were dog people, but I was drawn to cats. Um, so I've had quite a history of cat keeping, starting with Mr. Makula when I was a little girl. I currently have a very grumpy 15-year-old uh, female named Annie, who is in a line of grumpy female cats that I seem to be drawn to.